Hello, and welcome to the Empowerography Podcast. This is a platform created for women's voices to be heard and a place to share their stories, journeys, and successes with the world for the purpose of helping other women who might be on similar journeys. We are empowering women one episode at a time. I'm your host, Brad Walsh, so kick back, grab one of your favorite beverages, and enjoy the stories. If you're looking for jewelry that makes an impact on your self-care routine and your style, Empowerography would love to offer you a discount code to one of our exclusive partners, Quartz and Canary Jewelry and Wellness Company. Please use code EMPOWER15 to receive 15% off upon checkout at www.quartzandcanary.com. Quartz and Canary is truly the place where spirituality meets style. Hello there, Brad Walsh here, your host of the Empowerography podcast. Today, my guest is Maria Trusa. She is the CEO of Forme Medical Center in Urgent Care. She's an author and an international speaker. Welcome, Maria. So glad to have you here. Thank you. How are you doing today? Thank you. Thank you so much for having me here, Brad. I'm really having an amazing day. I was able to get up really early today, mm-hmm. made breakfast for my daughter so I could feel my responsibility as a mother. <laughs> and then I went and did one hour of cycling. Excellent. So, so you started the day off great. That's awesome. Yeah. Great way to start the day. I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time to be here today and be on the Empowerography podcast and share a bit about your story and your journey here with us. I appreciate you and I appreciate you taking the time to be here. An honor to be here. So let's jump right in. Maria, as mentioned, you are the CEO of Forme Medical Center and Urgent Care. You are the author of your first book called Yo Digo No Mas. You participated in a documentary about your life. You are the co-founder of a nonprofit organization called Promise to Aid Incorporated. You're also the founder of the movement I Say No More. And of course, last but certainly not least, you are a mother of three and a grandmother of two. You are one heck of a busy lady who wears a lot of hats. How do you find the time and how do you prioritize and organize all of this? How, how do you stay on top of it? I think, you know, I've, I've so many people ask me that question because I have a friend of mine that says, I look at your social media and I'm exhausted. (laughs) (laughs) This is, this is what I keep hearing from people. Number one, I am someone that is so focused on squeezing as much as I can out of life. Mm -hmm. So from the moment I wake up, I say to myself, okay, what is this day going to be like? Like, what am I squeezing today? So I look at my life as five pillars. You have the pillar of your body, the pillar of family, financial pillar, spiritual pillar, and the joy pillar. And I'm always looking for the harmony because it's not even balance. It's hard to balance and be in balance all the time. I don't think that really exists. I think you take a look at your pillars and this Mm -hmm. is what I do. I take a look at the pillars like for my body. My body is a constant, I is a pillar that I take care of every day. Okay. It's that is like breathing for me. Right. So exercise, even if it means that when I'm supposed to, normally I work really hard five to six days. That's just my priority. I know many people say work five days hard and then take two days of rest. Even on my rest day, I'm doing something that is going to give me a little bit of sweating. Because I feel like I need to sweat. And that is the pillar that I take care of every morning. So then 
my mind. So your body and your minds are, they're connected. Yeah, they're linked. So yep. meditation and reflection, that's a priority. That's a constant priority. Mm-hmm. Then I'm looking at, okay, between my business for me, my social movement, which is where a lot of my energy is going in my family. Like, what am I, what am I doing this? I, by the way, I do this on Sunday, Sundays. <laughs> so on Sundays, I take time to reflect on my week and look at my, I schedule my workouts mm-hmm. or what, this is the time I'm waking up. This is the time I'm going to do what I need to do. And then I look at my entire week and I say, okay, for this week, my priority will be my social movement. That doesn't mean that I put everything else to rest. It's just that my main focus is going to be on what I need to do for the social movement. Last week, for example, I was filming. I have a talk show, uh, Yo Digo No Mas, I Say No More, Mm -hmm. that is very important to me because this is for my Yo Digo No Mas social movement. My mission is to tell, to know, and to unite. Okay. So part of the to tell is to bring awareness of what I call the silent pandemic of sexual abuse mm-hmm. in, in Latino children. Mm-hmm. And so last week I was filming Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. So last week was really a Yo Digo No Mas week. Okay. And this week I am focusing on for May. But at the same time, I'm putting less energy on Yo Digo No Mas because I've already did as much as possible. So every week in the family... I schedule my dinner with my daughter. I say, okay, I want to see my grandkids. And that's a challenge, I have to say, because I am not a typical grandma. And, <laughs> but I love them dearly. Of course, of course. And uh, so it's really creating in your mind what's a value to you. So my children are a value mm-hmm. and if they're important to me, but they also understand that when I give them the time once a week or every other week that I am theirs completely. Right. 100%. I disconnect. I've learned to disconnect from everything else that is happening in my life, which was hard to do. Mm -hmm. It's hard hard to be 100% present. Yeah. Well, so, so are you part of the 5 a.m. club? You must get up at four or five in the morning. <laughs> so I go to sleep usually pretty late because mm-hmm. my 13 year old daughter and this is when she wants to spend time with me. And <laughs> she doesn't like it when I go to sleep and she's up. And I think that's going to change soon. So I'm mm-hmm. hoping for that. I sleep about four to five hours. Okay. And I know that a lot of people say this is not good. And I, for most people, it isn't. Mm-hmm. But I would say for about 20 years of my life, I am good with four to five hours. Five hours, it's great. Yeah. I don't need more than that. Yeah. And, you know, and I actually did, I used this uh, whoop. It's called, it's a watch that you wear and it measures your sleep. And I analyzed that for one year. Oh, wow. And I did this with a longevity doctor that I see. Because mm-hmm. he keeps saying to me, you know, you really have to be careful. And, and I said, look, I know my business partner, Gina, goes to sleep a lot soon, a lot. You know, she sleeps like seven, eight hours or maybe nine hours. But we tested each other. So mm-hmm. Gina, it took her about two hours to go into deep sleep and then REM sleep. For me, I spent about 30 to 40 minutes 
and I go right into deep sleep. And then I spend most of my time on the REM sleep. I think that's what they call it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I am, I am someone that has learned, it took me a long time to really go to sleep. I, when I go to sleep, I don't think of anything that I have not done during the day. That's it. It's like <laughs> that's turning brain off power. the that's, light. That's incredible to be able to do that. I remember, uh, Brad, I used to have right next to me always for years in my journal where I would write things because I would be sleeping and I wake up and I'm like, oh my God, I need to do this. I need to make sure that I do this. I had a turning point in my life. I call them accelerators, mm-hmm. uh, they're catalysts okay. that sort of push you to really reflect deep on life. And I had my one of my first one as an adult in 2014. And that really flipped this switch where that's it. I'm going to sleep. I don't, nothing, nothing really bothers me. Mm -hmm. And I know that it took a lot to get there. But boy, I wish this for everyone. (laughs) (laughs) That, that would be a very hard thing to do. It takes, that would take a lot of practice and a lot of work for sure. Daily deposits. You learned to create consistency with those little bites. They, mm-hmm. I call them daily deposits. And eventually you get to a, a, a place where you're able to, you know, do the things that you wanted to do, but you couldn't, you couldn't imagine doing them. And for me, going to sleep, when I put my head on, on the pillow, it's turning off the switch. I turn mm-hmm. off the switch and I'm gone. That's phenomenal. <laughs> Kudos to you for being able to do that. so maria you migrated to new york from the dominican at the age of 15 you got married at 17 how was the adjustment for you coming from another country and moving to america as a young teenager i think you know i am the queen of adjustments i learned to adjust at a very very early age and uh, i look at it now going backwards you know when i wrote my book i say no more yo digo no más it was a religious experience for me because it's like you really stop and you look at your life and you start connecting everything and you're like wow i did this this really accelerated me to do this and when i came here i remember 15 years old i could not speak a word of English. And I come to a place like right now, a lot of people come to America and you're able to really communicate like Spanish. Mm -hmm. There's so many people that speak Spanish. When I came here, that wasn't the case. And I remember one incident where I was on the train a few days after I came here and someone, a man asked me for the time. Mm -hmm. I keep looking at him like that, you know, like I'm lost. And I heard, you know, stupid, that I understood. Stupid is the same word almost in Spanish. Right. And I felt so, I did feel stupid. And then I remember then right after that, I go to Jamaica High School and no one spoke Spanish. It was hard to find anyone. They did not have bilingual Mm -hmm. school back then. Right. There was no easing into the school, you know, and they give you, because right now there is a lot more, they pay a lot more attention to, you know, being bilingual. I don't remember, Brad, I, I think back and I'm like, how the heck did I do it? I sat 
<laughs> in that classroom, not understanding a word of English. And then I would take the test. I would sit like everybody else and I will do nothing. I got zero, wow. zero, zero. I failed the first year mm-hmm. completely. But back then, it wasn't like I had somebody guiding me. Yeah. It, was, it was just. You had I to figure it out yourself. English. Yep. So I did figure it out. The second year, I actually advanced and I was able to graduate. I think I was 17 when I graduated. I think I was just getting married. How the hell did you manage though? If you, if you couldn't understand what the teachers were saying, what the kids were saying, how did you do it? How did you make it through? I would go home and I would start watching TV in English instead of mama, my mom watching the soap opera and watching anything in Spanish. I would go and watch TV in English and then I will start, you know, working with a dictionary and it was a lot of effort. It was tremendous effort. And I spent most of the time alone because my mom worked, my brothers worked. So it was pretty much me in the house and I would cook for them. My mom would teach me, you know, to cook so Mm -hmm. that when the family will come back from work, I would have the food ready. But I would be just focused on using the dictionary and trying to understand in the television, like in mm-hmm. somehow my brain absorbed it. And then I started communicating. It was like a baby. It's like watching this baby crawl and then this baby starts get standing. And then I started walking. And once I could speak, I love to speak and I love people. Mm. And I had a very, very heavy accent. Very. And that accent got in the way because even though I can communicate in school and I could do my homework, I remember graduating from high school and I wanted to be a doctor. You know, my dream was to be a doctor. I come from a family of doctors Mm -hmm. in the Dominican Republic. But I realized that I wasn't going to be able to, when I, when I came here, I was married to an abusive man, somebody that completely suppressed me, mm-hmm. was not interested. He's Dominican. He was not interested in my growth, you know, for him. Yeah, graduate from high school and then you can work, you know, and, and you'll work with work and we'll make money and, and that's mm-hmm. all that matter. And I decided I was going to go to medical assistant school. And I graduated uh, from a technical medical assistant course. And I remember I started to look for a job. And I never forget, I'm in Westchester right now. And here, there's a lot of people then. There was that many doctors also that were Latino. So I ended up going to be to interview with American doctors. And I remember this doctor, he said to me, you know, you're very nice. And obviously you have your certificate, but I have to say that I'm concerned my patients will not understand you. Wow. Yeah. And that's a big blow for me. I'm sure. Big. And uh, I ended up finding a doctor, actually, one of the few Latinos. Mm-hmm. And I ended up working for this doctor. And uh, this doctor became a little too fresh with me. Oh, and, man. Yeah. So he started to make passes at me. And I said, I got to get out of here. And I found this doctor, Dr. Talercio, that it's still, he calls, he's like my father. He says, Mm. he's a dermatologist Mm -hmm. and he didn't care about my accent. And I learned so much from him and I was with him for four years 
And ironically, like I said, he is somebody very close to me. I adore him because of the opportunity that he gave me. That is incredible. And it speaks volumes of your resilience and your resolve to just not take no for an answer and to learn and to just keep pushing. And and your drive is absolutely phenomenal, Maria. Wow. What you had to put up with. Right now. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. You are such an inspiration. So how long now then have you worked in the medical field? I would say 40 years. I'm 57. I started right out of high school. I was like 18, I think. 18 in the medical field. But, you know, it's a field that I have, I adore. And I've always felt very, very blessed because as I was going through life and really going through abuse and trauma and all of that, I would wake up and I was so happy to go to work. (laughs) I was like, oh my God, I, I love, love the medical field. So I ended up having a career at Scarsdale Medical Group. Mm-hmm. And at Scarsdale Medical, for those of you that don't know, Scarsdale happens to be one of the top five uh, cities, the wealthiest, mm-hmm. one of the wealthiest okay. in a lot of the Jewish community. So in, in there's, a, there's, you know, there's a connection to that. So when I ended up finding a job, and the reason, and I talk about this in my book, I left Dr. Delercio was because my ex-husband, the father of my children, when I was pregnant with my second child, he ended up cheating with someone that worked in that office that was mostly <sighs> my friend. Wow. So when uh, she actually told me, and I said, I can't go back to Dr. Delercio, he was devastated. Mm-hmm. And I said, I can't, I can't go to work with, you know, that was the last thing that my ex-husband did. He pushed me to the, to that level of saying no more So mm-hmm. uh, at that point. And it was a blessing because I ended up going to Scarsdale Medical Group and at Scarsdale Medical Group, I had a career of 26 years, 26 years of an extremely successful career that I used to dream of. Mm-hmm. I, it was like, I remember when I, I talk about in my book where the doors of JFK opened mm-hmm. and I come from a very poor town in the Dominican Republic. Okay. I never even saw doors open. It wow. was like my first experience. <laughs> and, and I looked at those doors and I said, wow, I'm going to be somebody big here. <laughs> I said that, I affirmed that when I was 15. I love it. Wow. But to be able to have found your niche, your career, your job at such a young age and love it from that point to have found your purpose or your mission at that young age and to be able to live that out and love going to work every day. There are so many people who never, ever even find that. So for you to be able to find that at such a young age is absolutely incredible. I think it's amazing. I agree. That's what makes me sad about, you know, I I have a staff at my center that they could tell you, if you ask anyone, what are the values of Forme? Forme's value, my place now, Mm -hmm. is love, kindness, and respect. Love it. And I tell them, 
I want you all to be happy. And I had a Scarsdale Medical, I followed those values. Mm-hmm. And I had a staff of 250 people. Holy crow. I went from 55 people when I was a medical assistant there. And then mm-hmm. two years later, they gave me the opportunity to become the manager because they started to see I was hungry. Yeah. I was so hungry. And the other thing, Brad, is that I come from such a broken childhood mm-hmm. and such a poor background mm-hmm. where I was, you know, there were Christmas where I had grapes and bread for my dinner. Wow. So for me, just being there, I'm like, wow. Yeah, it's life changing. Yeah. Yeah. I was grateful. I was grateful to be at Scarsdale Medical Group every single day. And I would not say no to anything. They wanted me to learn this. I'll take it. You want to learn this? I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do it. I was, I'll take over whatever I needed to do. And I was just grateful to be there and that they're Mm -hmm. giving me the opportunity. Mm -hmm. Two years later, I go from being a medical assistant to be in the manager. And by the way, I still have a very heavy accent, but (laughs) the doctors, they saw something in me that I had not even imagined. So then two years later, four years now in the make, I become the executive director of Scarsdale Medical. Wow. That's such quick advancement. Crazy. It is. And I took the practice in mm-hmm. my career there of 26 years from, I had seven doctors at the beginning when I started managing. I had 55 employees. I brought it down to 35 because they were making good money and they didn't really. So the value of money for me was tremendous. Mm-hmm. I'm like a penny in your pocket in the business is a penny that is in the business. Yeah. I don't want it outside of the business. Mm-hmm. So having this mentality, I started looking at ways of saving and being very meticulous about everything that we needed. And I started to build an inventory system. I started to fire people. I learned how to fire people, <laughs> hire new people. And I built an amazing team. I brought the team down to 35. And now we have seven doctors, 10,000 square feet of medical space. Yeah. By the time I'm done with this practice, I, and I left in 2015, mm-hmm. I had built 80,000 wow. square feet of medical space. We had three locations. We went from seven doctors to 50 doctors from 35 employees to 250 employees. Incredible growth. From a few millions to many millions. But because you come from such a place of struggle and your appreciation and gratitude for everything that you get when you got to America, that plays a huge part in who you are and what you're able to build and create because of your mentality, because of your mindset, because of the way you look at things and the way you think of things. I'm curious, because you would take everything they gave you and just take it and take it and take it. Was there ever a point where you felt or were you ever concerned or did it even enter your mind that maybe they'll take advantage of me? Because I do so much because, you know, there are people and companies who will take advantage of that goodwill and who people are. So did that ever enter your mind? In my mind, it didn't until I actually learned to value myself. Mm -hmm. So at the beginning, they were not paying me much Mm -hmm. and they would give me raises. 
the first race they gave me was a big race because I saved them so much money creating this inventory system. And then later on, I was just honestly, like I was just grateful that I had this job and that I was making more money than I I, I couldn't imagine. I was like, oh my God, I think I went, I remember going, I was making about $20,000 or less when I started. Mm. And then I got a $10,000 raise and I was like, wow. Merry Christmas to me. (laughs) Then I'm getting a divorce. I'm able to pay for my apartment. I'm able, I started paying my debt. I lived on a budget. I am somebody that is very conscientious of money. Mm -hmm. I have a beautiful relationship with money that I actually developed because coming from the background where I come from, uh, we could be affirming for the rest of our lives that we don't have enough, that we are poor. And I started looking at money and I said, I want financial freedom. Mm -hmm. I want to be able to do things with my children. I want to take my mom and my children on a vacation. I took them for the first time to a cruise. And I remember being so proud that I could pay for that cruise. My mom has never been on a cruise and I was like so happy. So for me, and this was a learning curve. Yeah. I really settled for less because I thought that was enough. Right. So I didn't really know. And then I started to say, well, you start talking to other people and, Mm -hmm. and people are valuing you, the accountant, the the lawyer of the practice, they're, they're looking at me and saying, wow. And I remember I did Alarmac uh, education uh, weekend mm-hmm. and went, there was a homework that they gave us. And I took another follow-up to that okay. weekend. There's a homework they gave us, and that is to do something that you fear the most and confront it. And then that week, and then come back okay. and talk about it. So by then I said, you know, I think I'm underpaid. And I started doing research that what does somebody like me, by the way, one of the things that they was sort of keeping me down is that I was going to Pace University to be a math teacher okay. as my, my career started to grow. Because then I went to Westchester Community College as a single mom. I'm still trying to get myself educated. And then I went to Pace University and then I decided I can keep up with my school and I can keep up with the growth at uh, Scarsdale Medical and having a family being a single mom. Mm-hmm. So I decided that I was going to leave school and I never finished my bachelor's degree. Never. And I'm here running a company of <laughs> millions of dollars. I found angels throughout our lives. We have angels yeah. that are mentors in the accountant, who's one of my best friends to this day. It's someone that took a, a lot of liking to me. Mm-hmm. And he also realized that I had, I was hungry, that I was hungry for knowledge, that I was one of the most, the most hardworking uh, women that he has ever met. And he started to teach me and teach me. And I became this person that could do analytical thinking. I started to build and bring to the practice a lot of procedures. And then I started to acquire doctors, do mergers and acquisition. This little girl from the Dominican Republic, <laughs> it was like insane. But it shows you that anything, anything in life is possible. 
Absolutely. That's it right there. You are a perfect example that you can do anything you want in life. As long as you're willing to put in the work and put your mind to it, you can do it. You can accomplish it. 100%. But to finish the story about Mm -hmm. the landmark, I went to the doctors. They were Mm -hmm. giving me raises of 5%. Then I said to them, look, this time I said, I'm sorry, but I cannot accept your rates. (laughs) (laughs) I remember that. I was like, wow. I'm like, I'm sorry. I cannot accept the race. Mm -hmm. I want to ask you a question. I said, how did you come up with that number? And they were like, well, we gave you 5% last year. So we feel that you're doing a very good job and we're giving you 5%. Again, I said, okay, I will not accept it. What I like you to do is then you do your homework, just like I do the homework on the staff of what I need to pay a medical assistant, what I need to pay a, a receptionist. I want you to do the same homework with me. Speak with the accountant, speak with the lawyer. Ironically, they hire a consultant because I think they got a little concerned. Mm-hmm. And I got, to make a long story short, I got a $30,000 raise. <laughs> <laughs> Incredible. But see, that shows too that if you don't ask, you're not going to get, right? They'll just keep giving you what they're giving you. I if you don't speak you up. that I've learned that I ask for the world. Yeah. I ask for everything that I want with love, kindness, and respect. That's the important part right there. That's, that's the key to it all. And like you said, if I get a no, I'll go and ask again. Mm -hmm. If I get another no, I go and ask again. And I ask again until I get a yes. Amazing. You are incredible, Maria. Absolutely. I love it. This is phenomenal. So what was the catalyst then that caused or inspired you to leave Scarsdale and become the CEO at Forme Medical Center? So for quite a while now, when I was at Scarsdale Medical, I was feeling that I had a calling. I said, look, I'm here taking care of mostly, uh, actually pretty much everyone there was very affluent. Mm -hmm. We had a lot of very wealthy people, actors, actresses. We had lawyers, you know, many CEOs that would come to this practice. It's very prestigious practice. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't really help my Latino community. So I come from a family. I have had a lot of success. I have two brothers that are entrepreneurs and they have created much success for themselves. And Mm -hmm. I am so proud of them. But I also have other brothers that are not as you know, they, they haven't had the, the ability to, for whatever reason, build wealth right. and they struggle. And I have cousins and I have my cleaning lady and I'm seeing all these people that I love and they're struggling to get healthcare. Mm-hmm. So I told my uh, son, Franco, I said, I want you to be the first in the family to graduate and become a doctor. And you and I are going to create a medical center for the Latino community that is high quality, that is dignified care. Mm -hmm. We're going to be in a beautiful place, just like Scarsdale. And we're going to bring the immigrant community, anybody that doesn't have insurance. So I had all this vision. Mm -hmm. And guess what? My son got into Tufts University Mm -hmm. and he was going to be a doctor. Okay. And three years into it, He says to me, mom, this is your dream. This is not my dream. Did that break your heart? Oh my God. I was heartbroken. Mm -hmm. He he said to me a year later, because I still was heartbroken a year Mm -hmm. later. 
He says, mom, I feel like I got a divorce from you. <laughs> <laughs> he was devastated because I'm extremely close to my children. Mm-hmm. Very. And they, one of the advantages that I've had, I remember my boyfriend, Mark used to say, you're so lucky because your children just want to please you. Mm-hmm. They want to make you proud to the point that my son went to <laughs> university, <laughs> Tulsa <Tom's> University <laughs> to be a doctor. Yeah. And, um, but he's very successful. I have to say, I'm happy that he didn't listen to me. And, mm-hmm. and now he's, uh, you know, he's, he's doing extremely well. So in 2014, I have breast implants okay. because, you know, I had this relationship with my body that it wasn't good enough, like many mm-hmm. people that yeah. are listening to this podcast. So I decided I used to work out a lot and I had very little breasts and mm-hmm. I wasn't happy with them. So I got breast implants. And then a few, 10 years later, I ended up uh, one of the breast implants burst. I was working out and I went to take a shower in out of the blue. My left breast is pretty much down to my size. Uh, And I was shocked and I ended up to make a long story short. I ended up having five surgeries (sighs) in a matter of five weeks on surgery. Number two, my kids came to say goodbye to me. I was dying. I developed an allergic reaction to penicillin and um, I stopped breathing. My body uh, turned purple. I blew up. So my the doctor actually asked my family to go and say goodbye because they thought oh I was dying that night. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And I made it through, obviously. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad, I glad you made it through. Thank you. That was the biggest catalyst to the changes of my life that took me to this place where I live. I live in a place of happiness and peace. And that incident was the major catalyst in my life to make the changes that have led me to this, to this energy. Like I really, I have a beautiful life and that uh, because of that, I decided that I started really questioning, you know, what am I doing here? I'm making a lot of money. Uh-huh. They're taking care of me. I have prestige. People look up to me like it, this is all a dream. But what is the impact that I'm making in the world? When I leave, what is my legacy? Uh-huh. I wanted, where is the legend of what I'm doing? And it became very clear to me that I needed to leave Scarsdale and I needed to build this medical center like Scarsdale. And I realized that, wow, I'm there 25 years. I have so much knowledge. Like I could build a practice from zero to- From the ground up, yeah. From the ground up. Mm -hmm. So I ended up telling my ex-husband that I was leaving Scarsdale. And he was like, no, you're not. I said, yes, I am. And uh, this is my second- ex-husband and hopefully my my last <laughs> i'm not planning to get married again but if it happens you know, I, you know never say I never happens. right <laughs> yeah so everybody was saying you're crazy how could you leave this job you're making so much money you know even they brought up my education you don't even have a bachelor's degree Jeez. and i was like look i got my master and phd at scarsdale medical there you go if, if I can build a practice like this from 5 million to 30 million, 
honey, I, I know what I'm worth. <laughs> I got this. So, <laughs> I got this. So I left. I gave them three months mm-hmm. and they're like, is it more money? I said, no, I just have very clear what I want to do. I am going to build a medical center for the underserved community. I want to really have, figure out how do I provide care to the immigrant community that doesn't have access to health insurance. So that became my focus. And I gave myself three months. Mm-hmm. I said to my ex-husband, I said, look, three months, that's all I need. And Brad, it was three months later, Gina Capelli, who knew me for like everything just tied together. Yeah. Gina knew me and knew of the work that I do. And she always used to dream of working with me. Mm-hmm. She had built for me and she was not doing well. She was okay. losing for, for me. She was selling it to White Plains Hospital. And she reaches out to me and she says, I want you to join me. She was the first person that reached out to me. I was like, oh, no, there's so much work to be done. I don't know what I was thinking. Like, no, I resisted it. Mm-hmm. But a few months later, three months after I left Scarsdale, I was here at September 25th of 2015. Mm-hmm. My last day at Scarsdale was June. And uh, Gina, I said, Gina, I'll come and join you. She had built a place that is called, our patients call it the hotel. <laughs> it's gorgeous with chandelier okay. and everything. Wow. And I'm like, you have the place that I dream of for our community, but you have to understand that you were going for the affluent community and insured community, but mm-hmm. that's not my mission. And do you know what she said? I'll make you a 50% partner and here's my business. Wow. You that's can trust. turn it around. <laughs> that is trust. And we are the most incredible partners. We adore each other. And I got to tell you, Brad, that the four years, the fourth first year of this business, mm-hmm. I was challenged to a level that I never imagined business-wise, right. professionally. Mm-hmm. And I survived and Gina survived. And we have an extremely successful business with 30,000 patients. Wow. In six years. We just celebrated our six years. Congratulations. So you not only survived, but you thrived. Five. We're opening another site. (laughs) Congratulations. That's amazing. Yeah. In six years. Six years. And I told Gina, our first next site is going to be Yonkers, where there is, I did an analysis at the beginning, like where are the Latino population, yeah. that where's the highest number in Yonkers was one of the first one. Okay. And I said to Gina, this is at the beginning, we're going to Yonkers. Mm-hmm. That's the, our next site. And we didn't know how we were going to do it, but we're opening up next year in Yonkers. Amazing. Congratulations. You just, again, an, another testament to if you dream it, you can make it happen. If you, if you put the work in, you can do it. You can do anything. Visualize it, speak it into existence. You create it. That's the formula. I love it. (laughs) You are phenomenal, Maria. Phenomenal. (laughs) Now, 
I know you have a couple of other driving forces that really motivate you and you hold very close and near and dear to your heart. One of those, of course, is your nonprofit organization that I mentioned at the beginning called Promise to Aid Incorporated, which you co-founded. Can you speak to us a bit about that organization and what inspired the creation of it? So dealing with the uninsured community, we realized that the struggles that I personally can tell you that really uh, hurt a lot, it was very painful for me to see that because you don't have insurance and you are undocumented, mm-hmm. if you are, let's say you need knee surgery. Okay. So you could be in tremendous pain. Your knee could be bone to bone, but you don't have insurance. Mm-hmm. And because it's not a life-threatening illness, right. you cannot get emergency Medicaid. Right. So our community, I saw them in pain, in a lot of pain. So we created the Promise to Aid to raise funds to be able to pay for the surgeries. People that are diabetic that were not taking their medication because they were not able to to pay for the Mm -hmm. medication. So it was basically subsidizing what we created because we created what's called a medical membership. So for a dollar a day, Mm -hmm. our patients that are uninsured get access to urgent care unlimited. Wow. That is huge. $365 a year. You come here, we take care of you. And what we did was in, in addition to that, I know all these specialists. So I went to the specialist and I said, look, I know why Medicare pays you. I want you to charge my patients one fee and we'll negotiate the fee based on Medicare rates. And our patients will be instructed that they need to come and pay you. There is no billing with our patients. They'll bring you the card. We Mm -hmm. created this medical membership form a card. Mm -hmm. And our patients negotiated with Quest Diagnostic, imaging centers. We do MRIs for 300. If you don't have insurance, usually it's 1500. Mm -hmm. But I knew the business of healthcare. So I knew where the profit was. I knew what the bottom number yeah, was. Yeah, you knew where you could make cuts and make things happen and trim the fat, so to speak. Yeah. So we ended up creating this program that has brought us actually connections to the government, although we are not subsidized by the government. This mm-hmm. is Gina and I mm-hmm. that really put our money and it's been pretty incredible being able to take care of these people. So promise to aid. Now we realized that there was a limit and the idea was to start getting the funding, even apply to the government so that we can pay for the services that they, they could not get. Mm-hmm. You are an angel sent from above. Seriously, oh. just incredible. There, there is no end to your kindness and mm-hmm. what you do. Wow. You are so inspiring, Maria. Thank Honestly, you bringing tears to my eyes. It's unbelievable and this is this still isn't even everything no i mean i'm so blessed thank you so much Uh, my heart is full of love oh i obviously that's that's a given (laughs) that's so so evident in everything you do because you come from such a place of scarcity your gratitude and appreciation for everything is exponential it's phenomenal You. you are one of the most beautiful human beings i have ever spoken to honestly thank you so i'm glad you see my soul oh 
100%. So has philanthropic work then always been part of who you are? And if so, why is this so personally important to you to do this kind of work, to give back and help? I have been helping people even when I couldn't. I remember people will come and ask me and I would just make sure that my kids were taken care of. But aside from that, I would give and give and give. And, you know, I come from such a broken place. Mm -hmm. My childhood was so traumatic in so many ways that going through that experience and then coming into this opportunity of coming to the United States and just seeing how little by little I started to feel what people would do for me and be so amazingly grateful of every opportunity, it didn't matter how little it was. Like Mm -hmm. I just was someone that really viewed that tiniest little gift and it filled my, my heart. And I was like, I was put on this earth to give back. I knew I needed to make a difference. I am at a point in my life where I know I'm going to make a difference in millions of people. Because it used to be hundreds. Right. Then it was thousands. Now I have 30,000. Yeah. So millions <laughs> is on the horizon. You're going to get there. I'm going to get there. And that's why, like, doing podcasts like this, for me, uh, spreading the mission, spreading the word of what I'm doing, and knowing that someone is listening to this podcast and they could connect and I could be. If I could be the catalyst for a million people, I mean, what a legend. Yeah. I mean, even to know that you have had impact on just one person is incredible, but hundreds then thousands, but to set that goal for yourself to impact millions, there is no feeling in the world, first of all, better than finding your purpose and your mission in life. Because again, you you think about the millions who never do find it and never, they stay stuck where they are in a job they hate or doing something they absolutely cannot stand. But to have found your purpose, first of all, is one of the most incredible feelings, but to also have what your purpose is, what you're doing as your mission and your purpose impact other human beings and give back. That's like winning the lottery twice. There is nothing. It's even hard to put into words how amazing it feels. Truly. I, you know, that inner peace that I talk about mm-hmm. that people say to me, I walk into a room and they're like, I've been asked, like, who are you? <laughs> and, and I'm like the energy. And I hear this so many times, like that energy that you carry with you, that energy is love. Mm-hmm. It's like, it pours out of me. Out of and, every fiber of you. Yeah. And I have to say that the love that I feel for me there is you go. what allows me to pour into the world. And First that's, into that's my key. Family. That's key. It's yeah. key. Mm-hmm. I've been somebody that did not love herself. It and takes a lot I of work. Am, a lot I'm of self-work. I'm in love work. with me. I, I love that. I'm in love with me. 
That's beautiful to hear. I love it. Yeah. Amazing. So in addition to this organization, you've also co-found you that you co-founded, you've also started a movement called I Say No More. And I know through previous conversation with you that you and I have had, this is an incredibly personal project for you. Personal project cause movement that inspired you to start and create as a result of your own personal story. Can you speak to us and share a bit about that story, if you don't mind? Sure. So at the age of nine years old in the Dominican Republic, at the age of eight, that's when my trauma started. My mm. mom had to come. We were five kids. My father was an alcoholic. We moved from the age of, when I was born until the age of eight, 17 times. Oh my gosh. I did the research 17 times because my father would not pay the rent. And we were eating the minimum amount of food, rice and beans, because my father would not feed us. Then my mom decided she, she would get a job. She was making $2 a week oh, in the Dominican Republic. Geez. Yep. So she had the opportunity to come to America. And uh, she brought my older brothers, my two older brothers with her and left the three little ones. So my little brother, uh, Henry, was three years old. I was, I was about eight years old. And then my other brother, Billy, was two years older than me. Mm-hmm. So we had to split. My little brother went to my father's side of the family. I went to a cousins of my mom. And my other brother, Billy, went to a friend of my mom. There, I can tell you that the trauma of feeling so abandoned. Oh, I'm sure. Feeling like you're not only your parents are breaking, but your family is completely broken apart. Broken apart. And I went to people that really didn't care about me. I was, my mom just left me there. So that was tremendous for one year. I was in a lot of pain. And then my mom was able to, with my brothers, find a house to bring us back. So it took about a year. And they told my father that his responsibility would only be to feed us, that they would take care of everything else. They found uh, this woman, Paula, that mm-hmm. believe it or not, she's still in my life. We support wow. her. She lives in my mom's place in the Dominican Republic. Mm-hmm. And uh, she's another mother. So she's been in our lives for so many years. And um, Paula moved in with us. Unfortunately, one night, my father decided to come with his friend, who is a brujo, a witchcraft man, to come in the middle of the night. And he was taking my little brother with him. And I said to my father that you couldn't take my little brother. because Where are you taking him in the middle Mm -hmm. of the night? Like, and my little brother is crying. Paula doesn't feel like she could do anything because this is my dad. Yeah. Then my dad says to me, then you go. My gosh. So I just learned this because I blocked many, you know, many parts of this night. Mm -hmm. Uh, My, my brother, Billy reminded me not too long ago. He was when one of my shows in the documentary that I was begging Billy to not let him take me. And Billy said, I forever in my life have been feeling like I could, I never protected you. Right. And, but I said, you were 11 years old. You were, Yeah. What could you, know. you do? You were a kid yourself. Yeah. So my father took me in with this man, left me at his Santeria. He had a room where he did witchcraft mm-hmm. and he proceeded to give me a bottle of whiskey. Oh my gosh. At eight years old. 
I was nine by then. Oh. At nine years old, he forced me to drink nonstop the bottle oh. of whiskey. Jesus. That in itself could have killed me. Yeah, absolutely. But I didn't obviously die. And he then proceeded to take me in his car mm -hmm. to a motel in the Dominican Republic. And he took me there. Nobody mm -hmm. could hear me. I didn't know if I was going to make it out of there. Mm -hmm. Of course. He proceeded to brutally rape me. Oh, my gosh. Nonstop the whole night. Oh. He destroyed my body. He destroyed my innocence. I woke up in the morning, almost couldn't even get up. I'm sure. I was still intoxicated by the alcohol. Mm -hmm. Thank God. Thank God that he did that. Imagine. Oh, yeah. No, no. He did me a favor. Yeah. By giving you the whiskey. Absolutely. But I woke up and I was in tremendous pain. And uh, I walked holding myself on the wall to the bathroom. And I was bleeding. Mm -hmm. I was bleeding nonstop. And I remember being in the bathroom and saying, how do I get out of here? Yeah. What is he going to now? Now I, I know what is happening. Like now, is he going to do it again? And thank God he got tired. He was exhausted. Mm -hmm. So he let me go. He took me back to his house. He told me like many predators that he was going to kill my family if I said anything. Oh and my gosh. So by then my little brother and my uncle, my uncle is looking for us. He had a machete because he was going to kill him. My father was sleeping at home while Jeez. all of this was going on. Oh, my gosh. So this ended up being one of the hardest things that I've gone through in my life. Absolutely. That is absolutely heartbreaking. I had to have surgery because my ovary was tangled in my fallopian tubes. Oh, my gosh. And I lived... Looking at that scar that I have from the surgery, reminding me every day of that. Yeah, and you can't escape that. So I realized that if I was able to go through that, that pretty much nothing else compares to it. No. I wanted to die at the age of 10. I wanted to commit suicide. I didn't know how, but mm -hmm. if I knew how, I would have done it because I did not want to exist. Oh my gosh, Maria, that is tragically heartbreaking. Yeah, but you know what? I'm not a victim right now. I am a creator. And with that in mind, I decided to write my book because my son, Jeffrey, said to me one night, he was like, mom, we were in Colorado skiing and it was just him and I having mm -hmm. a glass of wine. And he said, you cannot live this world without telling your story. Wow. Like you, I don't know. He's like, I don't know any CEO of a company that has gone through what you've gone through and that you've built yourself to where you are. You need to share that with your Latino community. Start mm -hmm. with the Latino. Inspire them. But share it with the world. The world yeah. needs this. So he was the one that started this. Write the book. So... <laughs> Two weeks later, I am um, in a documentary that came out of the blue. Wow. And I'm asked to be the Latino story of, it was called The Triumph of an Entrepreneur Spirit. 
It hasn't come out yet. They have some issues. When but it anyway, it's supposed to come out at the end of this year. Okay. But there's been some issues with the producers and, you know, but that experience alone was incredible because I went back to the DR to that place where I was raped. Oh my God. I can't even imagine how traumatic that must have been. There was such a freedom. Mm. I got to see my little girl mm. and I got to show her. It was like, it was a very spiritual experience for me because I got to see her come out of the bathroom and she got to see me. Yeah. <laughs> Look what I've done with us. Yes, exactly. And the pride that I felt that day, it was like no other moment in my life. I'm like, look, I do care of us. And now we are unstoppable. That's it. That's it right there. Your resilience is just... Yeah. Uh, Maria, you are a phenomenal human being, such an inspiration to, yes, of course, the Latino community. Absolutely. But but the world, yes. Unbelievable, the resolve and what you've managed to claw your way back from and climb out of to become the incredible, amazingly inspiring woman you are today is just a huge testament to your character. You are unbelievable. You know, you had asked me to think of a word to describe me and resilience is it. Mm -hmm, For sure. I I am the epitome of resilience. And now, you know, with Jodigo Nomás, so I decided to create this social movement because Mm -hmm. after doing my book, I started doing public speaking and I ended up realizing that we have a silent pandemic of sexual abuse in children, women, and men, specifically to the Latino community. I call it the silent pandemic. Okay. And let me tell you, after this happened, do you know how long it took me to speak about this? It became a secret in the family. Right, My course. nephews and nieces never knew. My kids did not know until they went to college. And it took me 47 years to talk about this. But for you to have to carry that around for so long, I can't even imagine the weight on your shoulders and on your chest and in your heart, having to carry that around for so long. But the unburdening must have been just mind-blowingly freeing for you. Totally. And who was the first person you told? My ex-husband, the father of my children, Mm -hmm. and he really made me suffer because of that. So in a way, it was like I couldn't feel if I enjoy having sex with him, which I really almost never did Mm -hmm. because I was so broken in that area. Forget Mm -hmm. it. He would tell me, like, what are you, a whore? Like, why why are you? Don't you remember what happened to you? So I went through a lot with this man, mm-hmm. uh, but you know, we, we are toxic. We come from toxic. Like for me, what am I worth? My mom abandons me. Mm-hmm. And I understood later on, especially my mom was a woman that learned to move mountains. Yeah. I moved mountains because of my mom. Right. She told me she started moving the first mountain mm-hmm. to come to the United States and Absolutely. abandon your family. My mom, you know, told me, Thank God, before she died, I got to experience the fact that she said, I wanted to kill myself when this happened to you. Oh, my gosh. I didn't do it because I had four other kids. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. So it's been a journey, but like I said to you, you know, we don't break the silence. So the movement, yo digo no mas, is to tell, to know, and to unite. Mm-hmm. To tell, I'm going to bring awareness of the silent pandemic of sexual abuse in the children, the Latino children that is oppressing and killing our community, our culture. We have a talk show, yo digo no mas, which you can find in our YouTube channel, yo digo no mas. And the show is, I bring uh, survivors of sexual abuse and they they're people that have started the healing journey and they continue healing and the idea is to bring education so that we can create prevention mm-hmm. and then you bring inspirational stories so that the people realize you don't have to be stuck in that's victim right. mode that's we right. could all be the creator of a new life and mm-hmm. that's the the movement but we're also my goal and this is you know by now <laughs> yeah whatever i put in my mind i'm gonna, You're do, gonna it. do it yeah so my my goal is to create healing trauma centers throughout the different states and then bring it to the dominican republic ecuador mexico colombia all of these in all our of these latino, latino communities and cultures yeah for sure yeah. So there's you're a lot of do healing. It. I have no doubt you're going to do it. None whatsoever. <laughs> I have no doubt. <laughs> it's it's oh a matter of God. time. There is no end to how you inspire. So I have to ask then, did you ever get the opportunity then to confront your father about what happened? So my father, I never saw him after that night. Okay. My father was dying. My father died of a brain tumor and he couldn't speak. He could only write. So he asked my uncle that he wanted, as he was dying in his dying bed, he said, please call Jackie. They used to, that's the name they had for me in the Dominican Republic. Oh, okay. Call Jackie and ask her if she can forgive me. Wow. Yeah. And then when I got that news, you know, I, I didn't know what to say. I yeah. said, I was like, God, oh, please help me. Because if I let him go with my forgiveness, that means that I have to forgive him. I mm-hmm. can not forgive him. In my mind, I'm talking to God. Mm-hmm. I did. I forgave him. And a few minutes later, my uncle calls and says, tears came down his eyes and he passed right after that. That's what he was waiting for. Before he could let go. And he gave me the biggest gift. My father doing that turned my life around. I had so much anger, so much resentment. And it was like. An unburdening. Yeah. I now looked at my father as this poor man that made one decision one night, destroyed his entire life, lost his whole family, and was pretty much alienated from everyone in that little town that he lived the rest of his life. He lived in hell. Mm-hmm. He lived his hell. He paid the price here. So now I, I think of my father and as you could see, I have a smile. I thank him for giving me, teaching me this lesson of forgiveness. Wow. I don't hate anyone. I don't resent anyone. You do run to me. Okay. I closed the chapter mm-hmm. in that. I'm not, okay, it existed. It doesn't mean that you completely forget and it no, doesn't hurt. No. It's, it's just less painful. But and yeah, hold, holding on to that anger and resentment isn't going to serve anybody, least of all yourself. Although I can't even imagine the internal 
conflict and struggle you had to go through and deal with to get to the point where you could say, I forgive you. Like, I can't even fathom it. I did a lot of damage to me, Mm -hmm. my kids, my, especially uh, Franco, my first child. Mm -hmm. But you know, Brad, I share that in my book, Yo Digo Nomas, I Say No More. And there was a purpose of me. I told my kids, I'm going to do this book. But guess Mm -hmm. what? (laughs) It's going to be very authentic. Mm -hmm. So you're going to read a story about your dad. You're going to read things you've never heard before. And there is, you know, I talk about in one of the chapters, I fell in love with a married man. And I ended up having an eight year relationship with this man. And I wasn't proud of that. But mm-hmm. I said, I'm not going to keep that out of the book because right. that is my life. That's part of who and you are. It's part of your all, journey. Yeah. We all have good. We all have bad. We all have, it's just good, bad, and ugly. It's mm-hmm. part of everyone's life. And if Absolutely. you think that's not the case, uh, you're not living in You're reality. sadly mistaken. <laughs> yep. Yep. That's why judging my book, in, and I mentioned to you, you ask me anything. I'm an open yeah. book. Literally, it's, it's, I could tell you the things that didn't work in my book. You, you see it all. This broken woman, but you also see the creation of this woman that I mm-hmm. am today. There you go. And when did the book come out, Maria? 2019. Okay. Yeah, this is when, when was COVID? No, 2020. 2020, yeah. Just before COVID, I was doing the book launch in February, at the end of February. Just before, literally, just before COVID. Just before. So during COVID, the book came out. I did the translation in English. Mm -hmm. We did the audible in Spanish. I'm working on the audible in English right now. And I founded uh, Yo Digo Nomás Social Movement 501c3 already. Amazing. So how hard was it for you then to actually sit down and write that book, basically relive those experiences? And on the other side of it, how cathartic was it for you? Once I made the decision that I was going to write it, I was actually very excited. I'm like, wow, how many people get to do this? So I decided I came up with a plan. I knew that I was going to wake up a little earlier, that every day there was going to be contribution to the book, that on the weekends I was going to spend every weekend I didn't have my daughter, I would spend on the book. So there was no planning. I have a place in Vermont and I would go to Vermont and I would do, you know, I would work on the book. And then when my daughter was not with me, I would do the book. When she was with me, I would wake up early so that I would give myself three hours mm-hmm. every. And then going through the experience, I cried. Oh, sure. I laughed. I was proud. I went through this feelings of this journey that was freaking amazing (laughs) everybody should write a book because then like I was saying you connect every part every chapter of your life and you realize that even those struggles Uh that you cannot see a gift there is a gift in every struggle you just have to wait you have to wait for that gift and then start with gratitude, start seeing it. And I got to see it all together. And in my book, I actually, at the end of every chapter, I give you a gift. 
So I say, this is the gift that I found out of this experience, including the gift of the first chapter, which is my rape. Incredible, Maria. Just incredible. How did your kids react and deal with, or how were they affected by what you, their mother, went through in your experience and then with the book coming out and and reliving and telling that story? We have... Uh, with my kids, you know, they, we have very authentic conversations. Is truth first, integrity always. Mm-hmm. And um, with that in mind, I told my kids, you know, this is, I'm talking about our lives. Mm-hmm. And Franco, you're going to probably hear things in the book. You're going to read things in the book that mm-hmm. my, you might not know. And there was one story that... Um, uh, before the documentary I thought was coming out, I ended up telling him. And it's the story that for me was one of the biggest catalysts too. That was one of my first, I would say, to realize how broken I was. And it was when Franco was born, I did not want this kid. I, wow. he, was, he was a boy and I wanted a girl. I was mm-hmm. sure that it was a girl. And when he was born, I rejected him. I really did not want wow. him. Wow. And I struggle every night. And then the kid, they feel you. He became a very needy kid, cried all the time. And one night when he was very few, few months old, I shook this kid and I threw him in the bed and my child fell on the floor. I almost killed my son. He didn't know that story. So I had to tell him and um, he was thanking me, thanking me, mom. Thank you for telling me that. He said, I have felt something was off with me. I felt that even though I love you so much, like there was something that was keeping us disconnected. And he's like, this is it. And we cried. We cried so much. This child, I could feel his tears in the back of in my back, just mm-hmm. holding me. And, and that was, I mean, it, it was an experience. The healing. The healing of this book. <laughs> it was so much healing. What right? a gift. What yeah. a gift. You know, Franco said to me after he read the book in mm-hmm. Vermont, we met and he said to me, I am very angry at you. And I'm like, why? He said, you give so many gifts in this book. <laughs> the lessons to be learned in this book. Why didn't you give them to me? And I laughed. I was like, <laughs> he's like, I have to find it from the book. And I laughed. I'm like, Franco, you see your life? All the lessons are here mm-hmm. in you. Mm-hmm. You are the lessons yeah. from that book. Amazing. It's been incredible. <laughs> wow. <laughs> What is one piece of wisdom or advice you would impart onto anyone else out there who might be going through a similar situation of what you went through? I would let them know that it is extremely important to break the silence. It doesn't matter how old you are. You need to break the silence. And what we do is these people scare us. They tell us they're going to hurt the family. They scare you. That's a pretty amazing tactic. And what you need to do is just find someone, someone that can listen to you. Even if you are four or five, it doesn't matter. It's speak up, break the silence. And if you're someone like me that took 
years and years and still living with this secret. The secret is until you break the silence, you are at war with yourself. Wow. Okay. You need to break the silence and we need to unite as we break the silence so that we can stop this chain of sexual abuse Mm -hmm. because we don't speak up. We are contributing to the abuser to continue to abuse. Wow. Amazing. Maria, what would you say is one of the most important things you've learned in your life? And what was your life like before learning it? And what was your life like after learning it? I would say that we are passing through. Mm. It's so fragile. Our lives are so fragile. So the concept that I have right now is I want to experience as much as I can out of life. Mm. Everything that I'm afraid of, I said in every fear, there is an opportunity of growth and to experience and squeeze life. (laughs) Squeeze it every day. So I created challenges of running the New York City Marathon, and I'm not a runner, and I did it. I love it. I love it. Mate, congratulations. Thank you. My last challenge just happened. I wanted to do an Ironman with my children, Mm -hmm. and I said, let's do a relay, and I don't bike. I don't do cycling, so I picked the cycling Okay. because I've never done it, and I am freaking afraid of it, so I said... (laughs) There is the the squeeze. So I knew I needed a lot of time. So in February, I started, you know, I got a trainer. I got myself a beautiful bike. I started doing the clipping and falling, clipping and falling and hurting myself. (laughs) And to the point where I just did on September 26th, the Ironman with my children. And I killed it. I was giving myself four and a half hours to finish the bike. And I did it in three and a half hours. Incredible. Congratulations. That is phenomenal. You should be so proud. Amazing. And now I don't stop there because now I start to train tomorrow to swim because I don't swim. So I'm going to do <laughs> next year the full Ironman. Why? Beautiful. Because, because it scares you. <laughs> and it scares me. And I'm going to squeeze life. As you so, said at the beginning, you squeeze as much as you possibly can out of every day. I love it. Yeah. What is your personal motto? Live as if today was your last day. I know this is something that people say a lot, Mm -hmm. but most people do not practice. I'm not scared of death anymore. I used to be. Mm -hmm. I used used to, oh, I was so afraid to die. And I'm not anymore because death is something that we have to accept and embrace. Yeah, there's no cheating it. (laughs) There's no, everybody's going to go. Yes. So, what I realize is that if I live every day and I love as much as I can every day, then I am living life now. Beautiful. Okay. We're going to jump into a rapid fire section. So the next grouping of questions, just be one, two, three, four word answer type thing. Okay. Okay. How would you describe yourself in one word? Resilience. What's the first thing you notice about a person? Their energy. If you could teach the world one thing, what would it be? Love, respect yourself first, and then the rest of the world. What's one thing you want but cannot buy with money? Connection. If you could change one thing about the world, what would you change? Acceptance. What's your favorite stress-reducing activity? Working out. Entrepreneur life is? Accelerating. Mom life is? Gratifying. 
That concludes our rapid fire section. Back to our regularly scheduled program. What does the word empowerment mean to you, Maria? Empowerment for me is the ability to empower others. Love it. What's an unexpected blessing or occurrence in your life that you're grateful for? My grandkids. What does the best version of you look like when you close your eyes and imagine it? Just the way I am. What do you do to keep yourself inspired every day and to inspire others? I've learned to love myself when I'm alone and I am reflecting on life and I do reflection every day. I get inspired by what I just did today and the connections that I've built in every day I'm building connections. So that inspires me, those connections that are built every single day. And what do you do to keep others inspired? I share my life. I share my soul completely, barely, completely (laughs) without reservations. As you've clearly done here. Can you tell me about a moment when a person's kindness made a difference in your life? Oh, wow. There's so many. I remember Dr. Falk when um, this is a doctor that found my talent at Scarsdale Medical. And I remember him saying to me, do you realize how bright you are? He's like, honestly, I don't think you have a clue in helping me see like, this is a man that I was like, I thought he was God. (laughs) I was like, wow. The words that he used, Mm -hmm. the way that he did it, just, it was the most kind and love that I felt in a long time in my life. Especially I was 24 years Mm -hmm. old when Mm -hmm. he said that. Amazing. Maria, if you could go back and give your younger self one piece of advice, what would that piece of advice be? Learn to love yourself a lot faster. Concentrate (laughs) on you a lot faster and do not worry about being judged because whoever is judging you, they could be judged. Beautiful. Lastly, if you were to deliver your last 30 second speech to the world, what would that last 30 seconds sound like? What would you say? I would tell you that if we learn to speak with each other in a love, kind and respectful way, I think we could terminate wars. It's not what you say. It is truly how you say it. You could say anything you need to say with love, kindness and respect. Beautiful. Maria, this has been one of the most incredible, inspirational interviews I have ever done. You are an angel. You are one of a kind. The work you're doing is phenomenal. You are such a beautifully, incredibly inspiring, beautiful human being. Just you're, you're one of a kind. They broke the mold when they made you. You are unbelievable. I appreciate you so much taking the time to be here today and share your story and your journey with me and with the Empowerography community. I am so honored to have you now as a member of the Empowerography community. Thank you so very much. I am so grateful for you. I am so honored to be here and thank you. Continue doing the work you're doing because you are impacting. We need to unite in impacting each other. That's what you do. So it is an honor for me to be able to share my soul, myself, 
with you and your listeners. I appreciate that. Thank you. Once again, my name is Brad Walsh, host of your Empowerography podcast. Today, my guest has been Maria Trusa. She is the CEO of Forme Medical Center in Urgent Care, an author and an international speaker. Have an amazing rest of the day, Maria. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to this podcast. If you haven't yet, please be sure to subscribe, rate, review, and share with all your friends. You can find me at visuphoria.ca, follow me on Instagram at Empowerography Podcast, and on Facebook at Empowerography. Please join me next time for another inspirational story from yet another amazing woman.